Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. It came as a shock near the end of the January 6th committee's sixth hearing last summer when Vice Chair Liz Cheney dropped a bombshell, the prospect of witness tampering in the investigation. First, here's how one witness described phone calls from people interested in that witness's testimony. Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, They know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. As long as I continue to be a team player. While the news of potential witness tampering by Trump world was shocking, it was not the last we would hear about it. In December, the committee released transcripts of closed-door depositions with witnesses. Through those depositions, we found out that former White House aide to Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and star January 6th committee witness Cassidy Hutchinson appeared to have been the subject of an effort by Trump world to influence her testimony. By way of a refresher, early on in the committee's investigation, Ms. Hutchinson was represented by a former Trump White House lawyer named Stefan Passantino. He was being paid by a Trump super PAC, meaning that Hutchinson did not have to worry about what would likely be expensive legal fees. Trump world was taking care of her. But that came at a price. According to Hutchinson, before she was deposed by the committee, Passantino told her, quote, we just want to focus on protecting the president. We all know you're loyal. I'm your lawyer. I know what's best for you. The less you remember, the better. Don't read anything to try to jog your memory. Don't try to put together timelines. Or in other words, forget everything, which is not something you really hear unless you have a supporting role in a mob film. But that apparently is the sort of advice you get when you have a Trump-backed lawyer. And tonight we are learning that that curious and very suspicious dynamic of Trump world paying the legal fees of witnesses ensnared in investigations into the former president, that whole thing is still happening. This time in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into the Trump Mar-a-Lago documents fiasco. CNN is reporting tonight that dozens of Mar-a-Lago staffers and people inside Trump's orbit have been subpoenaed by the special counsel team to appear before the grand jury in Washington, D.C., and that many of the Mar-a-Lago staffers who have been subpoenaed to testify are reportedly being represented by attorneys paid for by Trump entities. I should note that NBC News has not yet confirmed this reporting, but it is interesting. Now, there is no indication here of illegality or impropriety in this reporting, but it sure does raise a whole lot of questions. CNN also goes on to report that today, Margot Martin, a former White House staffer who moved with Trump to Florida, she appeared today before the grand jury in D.C. and that one of the special counsel's most senior prosecutors was involved in that testimony. Quote, the staffers are of interest to investigators because of what they may have seen or heard while on their daily duties around the estate, including whether they saw boxes or documents in Trump's office suite or elsewhere. 
They are casting an extremely wide net. Anyone and everyone who might have seen something, said one of the sources familiar with the DOJ's efforts. By all reports, special counsel Jack Smith is quite busy. We know from reports that the special counsel has sought the additional testimony of Trump's lawyer in the classified documents case, a man named Evan Corcoran, and that Mr. Corcoran has argued that attorney-client privilege prohibits him from testifying. Special counsel Jack Smith's team is reportedly arguing that attorney-client privilege does not apply when those communications could be used in furtherance of a crime. This thing is called the crime-fraud exception. And today, ABC News is reporting what exactly the special counsel's team is interested in asking Mr. Corcoran about. Quote, special counsel Jack Smith is pushing to question an attorney for former President Donald Trump about an alleged phone call the two men held as investigators were building evidence about Trump's potential obstruction. The alleged call would have been on the same day that investigators subpoenaed the Trump Organization for surveillance footage from Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort, as the government grew suspicious that Trump continued to hold on to classified materials even after one of his attorneys asserted in a sworn statement that he had complied with the subpoena requesting any remaining documents in his possession. While the special counsel's investigation, at least one of them, is clearly ramping up, it is far from the only investigation into the former president. In fact, with potential charges looming in both New York and Georgia, we may be at a point where all of these investigations into Trump are finally coming to a head. Joining us now are Danya Perry, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Danya and Barbara, thank you for being with me this evening. And I'll start with you, Danya. In terms of the what seems unusual to me, at least, and on its face, this notion that the person who is under investigation has his affiliates paying for the counsel of other people who may be important witnesses in that very same investigation. Is that unusual? And if so, what does it suggest to you? It's not atypical, and it's not inherently nefarious. You see third parties paying all the time legal fees for witnesses or defendants. It could be a parent. It could be a company which is required to indemnify uh, one of their directors or officers. Here, as you pointed out in your introduction, it's more akin to a mob boss paying for the underlings so that they will fall into line. And we saw that in in really excruciating uh, detail in Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. There's now an ethics complaint against her former attorney. And there, I think that approaches criminality. It certainly is a breach of that attorney's ethical duties to represent solely the interests of his client in that case, or certainly it appears that way from the testimony we've heard. Is there anything to be done in this situation? Because we know Cassidy Hutchinson eventually got new counsel, and that's when she became infinitely more forthcoming with uh, the committee. Is there anything that can be done to encourage witnesses not to use certain counsel? When, if at such time a criminal prosecution is brought, the prosecutors will likely request and the judge will surely grant a hearing that will test the loyalties, essentially, Mm -hmm. of that person's attorney. And a judge may excuse that attorney and appoint one for that witness in the event the judge finds that there's undue 
pressure being mounted, either a carrot or a stick, uh, on behalf of that witness. Uh, Barb, I want to ask you the subpoena dragnet that has fallen over Mar-a-Lago. Is it surprising to you that there are now, first of all, we, I think a lot of people thought the Mar-a-Lago case, we were told from reporting in the Washington Post last fall that charging decisions were imminent before the special counsel was brought into this. Does it suggest to you that this investigation is go, going to go on much longer? I mean, how do you read the, the, the subpoenaing of new witnesses at this stage of the game? Yeah, it's difficult to know, Alex, everything that's going on. But I can imagine some prosecutors just have a different perspective on how much information they want to lock in uh, before a case goes to trial. I can understand why Jack Smith might want to talk to all of the people who work at Mar-a-Lago and might have some exposure to the facts that occurred here. Even if he doesn't want to call those people as witnesses, ultimately, it may be useful to lock them into their story now so that they can't be used as defense witnesses. He can neutralize their story by locking them in now. What you really don't want to happen is to charge Donald Trump now. The case goes to trial. You think you've got a solid case. And then there's a dramatic moment where the courtroom doors burst open and some you know, butler who worked at Mar-a-Lago comes in and says, oh, I'm the one who stashed the document somewhere. I forgot to mention it all this time. And so by interviewing everybody who had access to that place, you might learn something new, but it seems to me more likely that you're just locking in people to avoid having them become defense witnesses down the road. That's fascinating. So it's effectively each side is taking out its own insurance policy, right? The feds, the DOJ is like, we're going to neutralize you as a potential defense witness by calling all of you in. Trump world's maybe trying to do their own form of insurance by having counsel, their paid for counsel, represent these witnesses. Is that what's happening here? Um, you know, it could be. I don't want to make any accusations sure. about what the Trump lawyers may or may not be doing. Um, as Danya said, there is an ethical duty by a lawyer to represent a client in their best interest. Uh, and if they believe that there is some conflict, uh, they are supposed to get themselves out of that situation so that a client can have zealous representation. So I don't know if that's going on, but certainly what we heard from Cassidy Hutchinson uh, about her representation does suggest that that might be part of the MO that Donald Trump engages in. But you know, as a prosecutor, you just want to button down uh, anything where there might be a, a little escape valve so that there's no way out once you bring your case. Surely. And I'm not who knows what those lawyers are doing with their clients, but the fact that Trump-affiliated super PACs are paying for them means yeah. somehow Trump must think there's some skin in the game for him in terms of having his folks pay for their counsel. He is not known to be a prolifically generous person, but we'll set that aside for a minute. Evan Corcoran, the crime fraud exception, the fact that we now know what the specific sort of incident is, a phone call between Trump and his lawyer on the very same day that the DOJ wants to subpoena this video footage which ends up being pretty meaningful to this investigation. What do you think of the case the DOJ is trying to lay out here? It's um, again, not sure, um, but oh, I'm going to go to go ahead, Danya, Danya first, and then I absolutely yeah. want to hear what you have to say, Barb. I want to hear what Barb has to say as well. Um, go ahead. It, it sounds like they they're making a strong argument, and uh, according to reports, we may have a decision from the district court as, as soon as tomorrow. So we'll see what the, the judge thinks. Um, it sounds like a strong argument. And, um, you know, in that event, uh, Mr. Corcoran will have to testify, will have to provide, uh, you know, evidence and, and testimony that could indeed incriminate his client. It may very well be that that gets immediately appealed and runs up and down the circuit. That's mm -hmm. certainly the 
MO um, in Trump world. Uh, so it may be that the testimony does not come very quickly, but it will come. Do you read anything, Danya, into the crime fraud exception that, that Jack Smith's trying to go at Trump lawyers on crime fraud? Does that seem particularly ambitious to you or is that does that seem sort of par for the course in a situation like this? That's also an M- MO in this case. I mean, we've seen that already. A, a district court in California has already found that the crime fraud exception applies with respect to a different lawyer of, of Trump. John Eastman. So, correct. And so, you know, any number of, of lawyers are in hot water themselves um, in having represented Trump and have had phones seized and have had, um, you know, grand jury subpoenas issued. So this is, as you say, par for the course. Um, Barb, I I have to ask you about what is happening in these timelines that all seem to be, to some degree, converging. I mean, we don't know what Jack Smith is doing. We don't know whether he's going to charge the former president with anything. But there's action happening. At the same time that we're hearing, there are potential indictments coming down from Alvin Bragg, the DA in New York, and his investigation into uh, Trump and the hush money payments made to Stormy Daniel and Fonnie Willis, the DA in Fulton County, Georgia. Georgia, who's looking into uh, Trump's efforts to subvert the results of the 2020 election. Is, does it surprise you that these weather fronts seem to be converging at the same time? I suppose it does, actually, Alex, because, you know, you think about these cases, they are of varying degrees of complexity. The Stormy Daniels case could have been charged years ago. Here we are, you know, seven years after the fact that that one's being charged. It doesn't surprise me that the January 6th case is taking, you know, until now and beyond because of its complexity. And the Georgia case falls, you know, somewhere in between. But I think it's very likely we're going to see charges next week in the Stormy Daniels case out of New York. I think we're going to see charges from Fonnie Willis sometime within the next month, if not sooner. And then these two cases with Jack Smith, I'm not sure, but it does get, you you get the feeling they're getting close to the end just because they're putting witnesses like Mike Pence into the grand jury. So it sounds, and the lawyers, so it sounds like they're getting close to the end there. So, you know, we could have a situation where Donald Trump is defending himself in court in four different places, you know, New York, Georgia, maybe Florida, if they charge Mar-a-Lago there, they could charge it in D.C., uh, but then also in Washington, D.C. Uh, he'll have to have court appearances in all of those places. And so I imagine he will welcome it as the circus uh, that he relishes uh, and use it for fundraising and uh, uh, to claim victimhood and grievance. But it still has to be distracting to a candidate's schedule. Uh, you, you can't have a rally if you have to be in court. Unless he has a rally at court, um, I do, which is not out of the realm of the possible when we talk about Donald Trump. Danya, the New York Times has some new reporting about the defenses that Trump may be testing out as it pertains to um, potential indictments. And I'll just read an excerpt from that reporting. According to two of Trump's political allies, the campaign, the Trump campaign, will aim to portray any charges as part of a coordinated offensive by the Democratic Party against Trump, who is trying to become only the second former president to win a new term after leaving office. Specifically, his campaign team plans on trying to connect Mr. Bragg's investigation into Trump to President Biden. Now, I understand the political strategy of that, but as a legal defense, I mean, how does that work? And do you, I mean, what, what would your advice be if you were defense counsel in this situation? It would be to find an actual legal defense. (laughs) That, that is accurate. I mean, that has been his defense since day one. This is a political witch hunt. Um, here, you know, as you just discussed with Barb, there are many different battles that are converging all at once on him. So I guess that gives him a little bit more ammunition to say that this is a concerted, 
um, war against him. But that that is certainly not a legal defense. He's probably testing it out and hoping that if it does uh, meet with, you know, is welcomed, that he might try it out with a jury. But that would be um, almost certainly shot down by a judge. Uh, that's a jury nullification argument, essentially, that does not usually fly with with a presiding trial judge. But I do have to wonder from the prosecutor's standpoint, I mean, how much do you have to gird yourself for an onslaught of total wacko, bonkers, circus-like atmosphere? Because that seems to be what they're telegraphing at this stage. And how much does that actually affect, you know, the trial, the the, the rest of the investigation? If, if, by the way, you know, Jack Smith is trying to continue his work as there have already been criminal charges in the Fulton County case and the Manhattan case, like, how much does it complicate the situation for the prosecutors? I think they're trying to put their heads down. Look, you've got two local prosecutors. You know, you have Jack Smith on the one hand, you have the Southern District of New York on another hand, but you have a local district attorney um, out of Georgia and a local district attorney out of Manhattan. And this has certainly never been done. Yeah. And so I'm sure they're bracing themselves. They are trying to put their heads down and do the work, get the job done, you know, be apolitical about this as much as they can and actually try the case on its merits and as a legal matter, which is what it is. And I'm sure they are just trying to just get the distractions out of their way, sweep them aside and focus on proving the elements, each and every element of each and every crime that may or may not be charged and prove that to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's their job. Yeah, they're going to need a set of like noise canceling headphones <laughs> that are bigger than the island of Manhattan. Barb, um, the statement from the Trump campaign tonight on the Manhattan DA's quote, quote, witch hunt. Americans will not tolerate radical left Democrats turning our justice system into an injustice system to influence a presidential election, which is all they want to do. I mean, one does worry in the way that Trump has a tendency to personally target individuals, the degree to which it's not just about canceling the noise, but also the concern for the physical safety of these prosecutors, these investigators. It's a very real threat. Uh, in the same way we saw thousands of people come to the Capitol on January 6th when they believed uh, Donald Trump's claims of a stolen election, they are going to take up the mantle in his defense as well. I think that when their charge is filed, and I think it's a when and not an if, I think there will be violence somewhere. Uh, I don't know how bad it will be, but there are unhinged people who do believe all of these things he says, that it's a witch hunt and a hoax. Uh, and there will be people who take up that mantle. You know, in the same way we saw after the search at Mar-a-Lago, court-authorized search, and he talked about, you know, how the FBI came in and raided his beautiful home. Uh, and a man went to the FBI office in Cincinnati with uh, a nail gun and an AK-47 and found himself dead later in the day uh, after a standoff with the FBI. I do fear that we're going to see those kinds of things because of the outrage that Donald Trump deliberately stirs up. My fear of this unknown is particularly acute. Danya Perry and Barbara McQuaid, thank you both for your time and expertise this evening. We have much more ahead tonight. How a rural county in California that Trump won in 2020 is totally changing its election system because of a conspiracy theory. But next, down in Florida, they are quite literally rewriting the history of the civil rights era thanks to Governor Ron DeSantis and the Stop Woke Act. Democratic Florida State Representative Anna Eskimani joins me to discuss all that. That's coming up next. Stay with us. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Chances are you learned the story of civil rights icon Rosa Parks back in elementary school. She became the mother of the civil rights movement after she refused to give up her seat to a white man on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, back in 1955. Parks' action inspired the Montgomery bus boycott, which led to the Supreme Court ruling that bus segregation was unconstitutional. It is a fairly well-known story. But 68 years later, Rosa Parks' story is being, shall we say, rewritten. The New York Times reports today that in an effort to get a social studies textbook approved for use in the state of Florida, at least one publisher has made significant changes to Rosa Parks' story. The New York Times compared three versions of the company's Rosa Parks story meant for first graders, a current lesson used now in Florida, an initial version created for the state textbook review, and a second updated version. In the current lesson on Rosa Parks, Racial segregation is clearly explained. Quote, the law said African-Americans had to give up their seats on the bus if a white person wanted to sit down. In a second version created for the Florida textbook review, race is mentioned indirectly. Quote, she was told to move to a different seat because of the color of her skin. And the reference to white people is gone. And in the third updated version, race isn't mentioned at all. Quote, she was told to move to a different seat. She did not. Who knows why Rosa Parks was told to move? Could have been anything. According to the New York Times, the particular textbook is no longer under consideration by the state. When the Times asked the Florida Department of Education about that, they suggested that Studies Weekly, the publisher in question, had gone too far. But the publisher said it was simply trying to follow Florida's standards, namely the Stop Woke Act. The Stop Woke Act basically bans the teaching of any lesson, especially ones about race and racism, that make any student feel discomfort, which could be anything that suggests systemic racism exists or existed, because who knows how that would make students feel, especially white students. The Stop Woke Act is currently in effect from kindergarten through 12th grade in Florida's public schools, but it has been halted in colleges and universities due to multiple legal challenges. And on that front, we have news. Today, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that while those challenges are working their way through the courts, Florida cannot enforce the Stop Woke Act in colleges and universities. Joining us now is Florida State Representative Anna Eskimani. Representative Eskimani, thank you for joining us. I know you've been involved in a lot of these battles to basically stop what the governor and his allies are trying to do to Florida education. 
How are you reading this victory in court today, though? It is not permanent. It is a temporary victory of sort. But do you think it portends anything as far as a larger battle? Well, first of all, Alex, thanks so much for having me. And it's a big victory for us, especially since right now we have House Bill 999, which is a huge takeover of higher education in Florida, canceling certain majors and minors, including women and gender studies, which I studied at the University of Central Florida. It goes after tenure, it changes general education courses, and it cancels DEI and CRT. And much of this bill's focus comes out of that anti-woke act HB7. So the fact that we have this temporary victory in court, it does speak to the thrust of House Bill 999 and how that is also going to be unconstitutional. I just wonder, um, and, and I think certainly the battle in and around these issues in higher ed seems to have gotten more traction in terms of pushing back than, the, than what's happening in K through 12, right? These textbooks, this is what is actively happening. This isn't theoretical. These are publishers changing their textbooks for reasons that remain sort of unclear at this juncture. But it seems like it's an effort to comply with a vague law that has a deeply chilling effect on any discussion about race or racism, even if it happened 60 years ago. Do you have the sense that, I mean, we know of this one example of this publisher doing this. Do you have the sense that other textbook publishers may have been doing the same thing? Well, not just publishers. I mean, we're seeing corporations eliminate their DI programs, even though they don't need to. Uh, we see school boards expanding the Don't Say Gay Trans Bill, even though they don't need to. So there is this almost proactive coercion happening because so many of these entities, whether it's public, private, nonprofit, they're acting in a place of fear. So if they serve LGBTQ plus people, they don't want to talk about it anymore. Um, if they embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're going to call it something else. You know, we're seeing this just censorship go over the entire state of Florida, even when it's not in law. It's almost like they feel this pressure and this force from Governor DeSantis to do that. In the case of publishers, you know, these are billion dollar deals. And oftentimes the largest states dictate the curriculum in other states. And so I assume it's a profit motive for some of these publishers. But I also would urge corporations not give in to this fascist agenda. Don't erase history to appease one man. It's so important the next generation know our history so that we don't repeat it. You know, when you talk about who is pushing the agenda, certainly the Stop Woke Act is um, very much something that the governor likes to tout as an achievement of his administration. But there are groups that are working hand in glove with his administration to execute this agenda. And I think it's important that we sort of call attention to the reporting on that. The Florida Citizens Alliance, this is from the New York Times reporting today, a conservative group has urged the state to reject 28 of the 38 textbooks that its volunteers reviewed, including more than a dozen by McGraw-Hill, a major national publisher. These are, these are the kind of objections this group has. An eighth grade book gave outsized attention to the negative side of the treatment of Native Americans while failing to give a fuller account of their own acts of violence, such as the Jamestown Massacre of 1622, in which Powhatan warriors killed more than 300 English colonists. I mean, I'm who knows what they'll say about slave insurrections and whether we've given too much, oh, we've put too much onus on slaveholders. I mean, the, 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 the asymmetry here is is quite obvious when we're talking about the genocide of the native peoples in this country. But this seems to be working. I mean, these these folks, the Florida Citizens Alliance, seem to have 
an outsized role in determining what children can learn. Is there a counter movement on the progressive side that is working to push back? Well, first of all, this is a very good point. Governor Ron DeSantis has surrounded himself with extremists, whether it's this organization or Moms for Liberty or uh, think tanks from other states that come to Florida. He has surrounded himself with some of the worst characters and people who do not have the best interests of every child in mind. But to answer your question, we do have organizations like the Florida Freedom to Read Project and so many others that have really uh, uh, erupted as counter and also just everyday people. You know, we're seeing more engagement from young people, students staging walkouts on their college campuses. The hearing we had on House Bill 999 this week, 220 people came out to testify against that bill here in Tallahassee to the point where the Senate actually amended their version to adjust to some of the points that people made in the House. So this backlash is happening from everyday people, but we have to maintain it, not just through legislative session, but also to the next election cycle. So we can make sure that we elect people who have everyone's best interests in mind, not just a few elite, not just their own political agenda. I got to ask you, it, it seems like the fear is the point in all of this, right? Even if there are challenges, the idea that these laws exist, that they've been proposed or passed by the legislature, seems to almost be the point in the same way that, you know, the conservatives are trying to throw fear into the mix when it comes to abortion and access to abortion or abortion medication. The entire point is to terrify people enough to make choices that aren't good for them or to actually prevent them from, from seeking out the truth. And I wonder if that strategy is working or whether you think the national attention is having its due effect. Well, this is why I always reference how every culture war is also a class war. Because to your point, when you scare people from learning about their history, from learning the stories of their ancestors, from seeking gender-affirming care, or making the right decision for their future by ending a pregnancy, when you scare them from making those decisions, you're also deciding what their economic stability looks like, whether they're going to be able to have enough money to make ends meet, to access the care they need to live an authentic life, to have higher education, to be free thinkers. You know, so much of this is also tied to just separating the haves and have nots and making it harder for those of us where access is not always clear cut to really reach our fullest potential. So we have to look at this, not just from a culture lens, but also from an economic and class struggle lens to ensure that we're lifting up every person and overcoming these barriers, which really are designed to just be cruel for the sake of being cruel and to punish people who already struggle with different systematic barriers. Yeah, And so no I tell folks all the time, this is not about winning every battle, it's about winning the war. Yeah, it's it's notable that we're talking about the public school system here that uh, conservatives have focused on. Florida State Representative Anna Eskamani, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. We have got lots more ahead tonight. The tentacles of the big lie creep into a rural California county's election system. And who exactly is to blame for the largest bank failure since the 2008 financial crisis? Stick around. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. In the 2020 election, Donald Trump lost the state of California by 5 million votes. But he won the state's rural northern Shasta County with 65 percent of the vote. Nobody disputes that outcome. But now Shasta County has become ground zero for election conspiracies in a way that threatens to completely upend the county's system of voting. Now, it all started back in 2021 and 2022, when local militia groups teamed up with a wealthy conservative filmmaker living in Connecticut and started a campaign to oust the Republican leadership in Shasta County. Several long-serving Republicans on the Board of Supervisors were replaced with hard-right members who have now made it their mission to transform Shasta County into even more of a conservative utopia. That apparently hostile takeover has already reportedly led to a devastating exodus of county employees who are now being replaced with fringe right-wing figures. Today, the L.A. Times reports that the newly super-conservative Shasta County Board of Supervisors offered the top job of running the county to the leader of a California secessionist movement, a man who wants to get all the rural conservative parts of California to secede from the more liberal parts and become a 51st state which is quite an idea. They want to secede from all the blue parts of California, except for San Diego and parts of Silicon Valley. Anyway, there is more. The new Shasta County leadership now has a plan to cancel the county's relationship with Dominion voting systems. Dominion has been providing election machines to Shasta County for decades, but Dominion is also at the center of the baseless election fraud conspiracy pushed by Donald Trump and conservative media. And so now in the conservatopia of Shasta County, Dominion has got to go in its place. Shasta County supervisors are working with election conspiracy theorist and pillow mogul Mike Lindell to develop a new system to count all of Shasta County's ballots by hand. Lindell has promised to provide the county with all of the resources necessary, including financial and legal resources for any legal fight they have with Dominion. Maybe some free pillows as well, but who knows? Not everyone is on board with this plan. This week, citizens of Shasta County confronted the board about that plan, as well as reports that Supervisor Kevin Cry has been flying to meet with Mr. Lindell on the taxpayer's dime. When you did fly across to meet with Mr. Lindell, um, did you use taxpayer money to fund that trip? I did fly out there, absolutely. Okay. Was it with taxpayer money? I was on a county-sponsored trip. Parts of my... Parts of my um, trip I paid for myself that were outside uh, the purview of the county. This whole city has like, sort of been a hostage to this Dominion voting machine situation. How are we supposed to have an election if an election were to pop up? And I don't think the answer is a hand-counted system provided by the MyPillow guy. That doesn't make any sense. It just it doesn't make sense. And.
It is hard to know how a man who sells pillows for a living has the time to moonlight as a voting systems developer, but this is where we are. Cry foul about American democracy for long enough, loudly enough, and eventually someone will ask you to fix it. Blame to shoulder in the country's second largest bank failure, there are more candidates than you think. That's ahead. Stay with us. I can reassure the members of the committee that our banking system is sound and that Americans can feel confident that their deposits will be there when they need them. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen today testifying before the Senate Finance Committee. Yellen was there to discuss President Biden's budget plans, but she began with some reassurance because the clouds surrounding the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history, those clouds still have not lifted. And maybe that's because the reasons for Silicon Valley Bank's failure are numerous. There was the bank's decision to put billions into long-term government investment, something that is traditionally safe, but as the Fed raised interest rates, those investment values plummeted. And then when the bank clients panicked and demanded their money, it caused a run on the bank. And then there was Congress's 2018 decision to roll back strict regulations established by the Dodd-Frank Act in response to the 2008 financial crisis. Senator Elizabeth Warren and other Democrats have argued that rolling back those regulations was a primary cause of Silicon Valley Bank's failure. And who thought that those rollbacks were a good idea at the time? None other than Silicon Valley Bank. Back in 2015, SVB's CEO, Greg Becker, told the Senate Banking Committee that the bank had a, quote, deep understanding of the markets, strong risk management practices, a fundamental strength of the innovation economy. He also noted that SVB's business model did not pose any systemic risk and that Dodd-Frank would only put an outsized burden on the bank. Eight years later, SVB's model did clearly pose systemic risk that then required the federal government to create and activate an emergency rescue plan. As it turns out, that outsized burden Mr. Becker was talking about might actually have been a set of necessary guardrails. Annie Lowry of The Atlantic argues that Americans should be outraged over all of this. There is no success story here, she writes. The complexity of financial regulations and the dullness of balance sheet minutiae should not lull any American into misunderstanding what has happened. The bank failed. The government failed. Once again, the American people are propping up a financial system incapable of rendering itself safe. Joining us now is Annie Lowry, staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of Give People Money. Annie, my friend, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here. It's great to see you too, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I wish we were talking about cheerier things, but I, I do want to get your thought on how, let's just start with the, the regulatory rollbacks, right? I mean, I think people have, that it was a bipartisan effort to roll back some of these Dodd-Frank protections in 2018. I believe it was 13 Democrats worked to repeal the, those parts of Dodd-Frank Act for the, these mid-sized banks, mid-sized being banks that had $200 billion in assets. And my question to you is, you know, these are people, these are Democrats whose names we know, Michael Bennett of Colorado, Chris Coons of Delaware, Tim Kaine of Virginia, Kristen Sinema of Arizona, you know, John Tester of Montana, Mark Warner of Virginia. What was it about the political climate in 2018 that made these Democrats want to cross the aisle to do this, cross the aisle to do something like this? And how did anyone convince them that a bank with $200 billion in assets was a mom and pop shop? 
These are great questions and they're not great answers. We've seen again and again that Wall Street and other financial firms are relentless lobbyers against these regulations. And they argue that these regulations hurt the American economy by preventing lending, by making it such that it's only the biggest banks that concede in the United States. One of the arguments they made was that these regional banks, these smaller banks, um, couldn't compete against bigger banks. And they also said that they didn't pose systemic risk because they tended to operate within a smaller confine. But, you know, this is a crystal clear example of like regulators stepping on a rake here, right? Or Congress stepping on a rake by relaxing exactly the regulations that would come back. Um, and the lack of them would endanger the broader American economy and require a bailout that is backed by the American people again. And I think that at the time, you know, there was some thought about trying to get some bipartisan work done during the Trump administration. And I think that we've seen that Democrats in Congress are not immune to the pressures from financial firms, from their consistent lobbying. We've seen again and again, that Democrats have been willing to go along with this kind of thing, although they tend to have some folks on their side of the aisle who are also the strongest pro-regulatory forces, including Elizabeth Warren. You know, I got to say, I don't think a lot of people know that Barney Frank, the co-author of Dodd-Frank, serves on the board of Signature Bank, which is the other bank that failed in this, the wake of the SVB failure. He joined the board in 2015. I mean, I, I, it, it is distressing when you look at the list of Democrats who have been involved in this moment and they're some of the champions of financial reform. So, I mean, how do you square something like that? It's hard to square without understanding that there are just simple financial incentives here. And Signature Bank, notably, um, unlike Silicon Valley Bank, that failure had a lot more to do with the crypto ecosystem, which, thank goodness, has largely been kept out of the broader uh, mainstream and Wall Street financial ecosystem. So there's been a lot of turbulence in those markets, but they haven't had very many real economy spillovers, though there certainly have been some, precisely because uh, uh, Congress did not get its act together to regulate and thus to allow crypto in. And so, you know, you know, Signature Bank, it was a slightly different set of issues. But yeah, I mean, this is, again, I think that the American people should really be asking themselves if they think that Congress is capable of setting out the kind of regulations that would truly protect them here. This is a really, really disturbing event despite the fact that it now seems that the damage control might have worked fairly well and there might not be as broad uh, financial contagion as we initially worried. Well, and to some degree, the jury's out, though, right? Like, what, what, what could the yeah. Fed's actions incentivize bad behavior in the future? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The Fed has come forward and said that we will not prevent uh, these financial institutions from failing in a way that would harm the real economy and would spread financial contagion. So they've come in and basically set themselves up as a backstop. And that can, you know, will have this knock-on effect of encouraging greater risk-taking down the road. And then I also think that we're now experiencing this kind of unusual side effect, which is that this financial contagion and the inability of the banking sector to keep itself safe is complicating the Fed's path for interest rate policy, uh, yeah. because they're now concerned banks um, pulling back on lending too suddenly themselves will cool the economy off and could put the entire economy at risk of recession. So we're dealing with really really significant financial complications, all of which are completely unnecessary, all of which stem from this bank having terrible risk management policies and regulators and supervisors not stepping in when they should have weeks and months ago when it became obvious that this problem could you know, develop into a crisis. 
Annie Lowry, thank you for giving us all permission to be outraged at everyone, everywhere, all at once. My friend, it is good to see you. Next time, we're going to talk about something positive happening in the American economy. Thanks for your time. I hope so, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> we will be right back. If you look past the pile of flaming debris in these photos, you can see that in the distance is the Eiffel Tower. I point that out to give you a sense of how this is happening in the very center of Paris. Tonight, several thousand protesters lit fires and clashed with police clad in riot gear throughout the city. And the images are breathtaking. The thing that these protesters are angry about is that today, French President Emmanuel Macron raised the retirement age in France from 62 years to 64 years. But they are not just mad about that policy change. The protesters are also mad at the way Macron did it. There was supposed to be a vote today in France's parliament on this issue, but it was unclear if Macron's side had enough support. So just minutes before that scheduled vote, President Macron invoked special constitutional powers to shoehorn the changes through parliament without parliament's approval. French parliament is incredibly confusing. So whether this will lead to a no confidence vote or a vote that just repeals what the president just did, it's all too early to tell. Early to tell. But it might be wise for Republicans in this country who have toyed with the idea of raising the retirement age and who have proposed reforming the social safety net in all manner of undemocratic negotiations. It might be wise for them to look at what is happening across the Atlantic. That does it for us tonight. I will see you again tomorrow. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.